Chapter Twenty Five of Ravensdene Court by J. S. Fletcher. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Clear decks. The bit of headgear which Lorrimore had taken down assumed a new interest. Scarterfield and I gazed at it as if it might speak to us. Nevertheless, the detective, when he presently spoke, showed some incredulity. "'That's the sort of cap that any Chinaman wears,' he remarked. "'It may have belonged to any of them.' "'No,' answered Lorrimore, with emphatic assurance. "'That's my man's. I saw him making it. He's as deft with his fingers at that sort of thing as he is at cooking. And since this cap is his, and as he's not among the lot there on deck, he's the man that you, Middlebrook, saw escaping in the boat, and since he is that man, I know where he'd be making.' "'Where, then?' demanded Scarterfield. "'To my house,' answered Lorrimore. Scarterfield showed more doubt. "'I don't think that's likely, doctor,' he said. "'Presumably he's got those jewels on him, "'and I should say he'd get away from this "'with the notion of trusting to his own craft "'to get unobserved on a train "'and lose himself in Newcastle. "'A Chinaman with valuables on him worth eighty thousand pounds? "'Come!' "'You don't know that he's any valuables of any sort on him,' retorted Lorrimore. "'That's all supposition. I say that if my man Wing was on this vessel, as I'm sure he was, he was on it for purposes of his own. He might be with this felonious lot, but he wouldn't be of them. I know him, and I'm off to get on his track. Lay you anything you like, a thousand to one, that I find Wing at my house.' "'I'm not taking you, Lorrimore,' said I. "'I don't mind laying the same.' Scarterfield looked curiously at the two of us. Apparently his belief in Chinese virtue was not great. "'Well,' he said, "'I'm on his track anyhow, and I propose to get away to the beach. There's nothing more we can do here. These naval people have got this job in charge now. Let's leave them to it. Yet,' he added, as we left the galley, and with a significant glance at me, there is one thing, Middlebrook. Wouldn't you like to have a look inside those two chests that we've heard so much about, you and I? I certainly should, I answered. Then we will, he said. I, too, have some curiosity that way. And if Master Wing has repaired to the doctor's house, he's all right, and if he hasn't, he can't get very far away, being a Chinaman in his native garments, and wounded. The chests which had come aboard the yawl with Miss Raven and myself the previous afternoon, it seemed as if ages had gone by since then, still stood where they had been placed at the time, close to the gangway leading to the main cabin. Lorrimore, Scarterfield, the young naval officer, and I gathered round, while a couple of handy blue jackets forced them open. No easy business, for whether the dishonest bank manager and Netherfield Baxter had ever opened them or not, they were screwed up again in a fashion which showed business-like resolves that they should not be easily opened again. But at last the lids were off, to reveal inner shells of lead, and within these, gleaming dully in the fresh sunlight, lay the monastic treasures of which Scarterfield and I had read in the hotel at Blythe. "'Queer,' said the detective, as he stood staring meditatively at patterns and chalices, reliquaries and pyxes. "'All these, I reckon, are sacred things, 
consecrated and all that, and yet ever since the Reformation time they've been mixed up with robbery, and now at last with wholesale murder. Odd, isn't it? However, there they are. And here, he added, pulling the parchment schedules out of his pocket, which he had discovered at Baxter's old lodgings in Blythe, and handing them to the lieutenant, here is the list of what ought to be. You'll take all this in charge, of course. I don't know if it comes within the law of treasure trove or not, but as the original owners are dust and ashes four hundred years ago, I should say it does. Anyway, the Crown solicitors will soon settle that point. We went off from the yawl, the three of us, in the boat which had brought Lorrimore and me aboard her. The group on shore saw us making for the point whereat the escaping figure had landed in the early morning, and followed us thither along the beach. They came up to us as we stepped ashore, and while Lorrimore began giving Mr. Raven an account of what we had found on the yawl, I drew his niece aside. "'You had better know the worst in a word,' I said. "'We were more than fortunate at getting away from the yawl as we did. Don't be upset. There isn't a man alive on that thing.' baxter she exclaimed i said not one i answered wholesale don't think about it as for me i wish i'd never seen it but now it's a question of a living man wing then it was as i thought she asked wing was there lorrimore is sure of it he found a cap of wings in the galley said i and as wing isn't amongst the dead he's the man who escaped Scarterfield came up, the local policeman with him who had joined Mr. Raven's search party as it came across country. "'Whereabouts did this man land, Middlebrook?' he asked. "'You saw him, you and Miss Raven, didn't you?' "'We saw him round these rocks,' I replied. "'But then they hid him from us. We couldn't see exactly. Somewhere on the other side of them, anyway.' We spread ourselves out along the shore, crossing the spit of sand, now encroached on considerably by the tide, and began to search amongst the black rocks that jutted out of it thereabouts. Presently we came across the boat, slightly rocking in the lapping water alongside a ledge. I took a hasty glance into it and drew Miss Raven away, for on the thwarts and on the seat in the stern and on one of the oars thrown carelessly aside there was blood. A sharp cry from one of the men who had gone a little ahead brought us all hurrying to his side. He had found, amongst the rocks, a sort of pool at the sides of which there was dry, sand-strewn rock. There were marks there, as if a man had knelt in the sand, and there was more blood and there were strips of clothing, linen, silk, as if the man had torn up some of his garments as temporary bandages. "'He's been here,' said Lorrimore, in a low voice. "'Probably washed his wounds here. Salt is a styptic. Flesh wounds, most likely, but,' he added, sinking his voice still lower, "'judging from what we've seen of the blood he's lost, he must have been weakening by the time he got here. Still, he's a man of vast strength and physique, and he'd push on. Look for marks of his footsteps.' We eventually picked up a recently made track in the sand, and followed it until it came to a point at the end of the overhanging woods, where they merged into the open moorland running steeply down towards the beach. There, in the short, wiry grass of the close-knitted turf, the marks vanished. 
"'Just as I said,' muttered Lorrimore, whom, with Miss Raven and myself, was striding on a little in advance of the rest. "'He's made for my place, as I knew he would. I knew enough of this country to know that there's a road at the head of these moors that runs parallel with the railway on one side and the coast on the other towards Ravensdean. He'd be making for that. He'd take up the side of this wood as the nearest way to strike the road.' That he was right in this we were not long in finding out. Twice, as our party climbed the steep side of the moorland, we came across evidence of the fugitive. At two points we found places whereat a man had recently sat down on the bank beneath the trees to rest. And at one of them we found more, a blood-soaked bandage. "'No man can go far losing blood in that way,' whispered Lorrimore to me, as we went onward. He can't be far off. And suddenly we came across our quarry. Coming out on the top of the moorland, and rounding the corner of the woods, we hit the road of which Lorrimore had spoken, a long, white, hedgeless, wallless ribbon of track that ran north and south through treeless country. There, a few yards away from us, stood an isolated cottage, some gamekeeper's or watcher's place, with a bit of unfenced garden before it. In that garden was a strange group, gathered about something that at first we did not see. Mr. Cazalette, obviously very busy, the police inspector, a horse and trap tethered to a post close by, showed how they had come, a woman, evidently the mistress of the cottage, a child, open-mouthed, wide-eyed with astonishment at these strange happenings, a dog that moved uneasily around the two-legged folk, whimpering his concern. The bystanders moved as we hurried up, and then we caught glimpses of towels and water and hastily improvised bandages and smelt brandy, and saw in the midst of all this wing, propped up against a bank of earth, his eyes closed, and over his yellow face a queer grey-white pallor. His left arm and shoulder were bare, save for the bandages which Cazalette was applying. There were discarded ones on the turf, which was soaked with blood. Lorrimore darted forward with a hasty exclamation, and had Cazalette's job out of the old gentleman's hands, and into his own before the rest of us could speak. He motioned the whole of us away except Cazalette and the woman, and the police inspector turned to Mr. Raven and his niece, and to myself and Scarterfield. "'I think we were just about in time,' he said laconically. "'I don't know what it all means, but I reckon the man was about done for. Bleeding to death, I should say.' "'You found him?' I asked. "'No,' he answered. "'Not at first, anyway. The woman there says she was out here in her garden, feeding her fowls, when she saw him stagger round the corner of the wood there and make for her.' He fell across the bank, where he's lying in a dead faint, and she ran for water. Just then we came along in the trap, saw what was happening, and jumped out. Fortunately, when we set off, Mr. Cazalette insisted on bringing a big flask of neat brandy and some food. He said, you never knew what you mightn't want, and we gave him a stiff dose and pulled him round sufficiently to be able to tell us where he was wounded. And he's got a skinful a bullet through the thick part of his left arm, another at the point of the same shoulder, and a third just underneath it. 
Mr. Cazalet says they're all flesh wounds, but I don't know. I know the man's fainted twice since we got to him. And look here, just before he fainted the last time, he managed to fumble amongst his clothing with his right hand, and he pulled something out and shoved it into my hand with a word or two. Give it to Lorimore, he said in a very weak voice. Tell him I found it all out and was going to trap all of them, but they were too quick for me last night all dead now. Then he fainted again, and look at this. He drew out a piece of canvas, twisted up anyhow, and opening it before our wondering eyes, revealed a heap of magnificent pearls and a couple of wonderful rubies that shone in the sunlight like fire. That's what he gave me, said the inspector. What is it? What's it mean? That's what Salter Quick was murdered for, said I and it means that Lorimore's man ran down the murderer. And without waiting for any comment from him, and leaving Scarterfield to explain matters, I went across the little garden to see how the honest Chinaman was faring. It was a strange, yet a plain story, that Wing told his master, and a select few of us a day or two later, when Lorimore had patched him up. To anybody of a humdrum life, such as mine had always been until these events, it was indeed a stirring story. The queer thing, however, at any rate queer to me, was that the narrator, as calm and suave as ever in his telling of it, did not seem to regard it as anything strange at all. He might have been explaining to us some new way of making a good cake. At our request and suggestion, he had journeyed to London and plunged into those quarters of the East End wherein his fellow-countrymen are to be found. His knowledge of the district of which Limehouse Causeway forms a centre soon brought him in touch with Lo Fan, who, as he quickly discovered, had remained in London during the last two or three years, assisting in the management of a Chinese eating-house. Close by, in a lodging kept by a compatriot, Wing put himself up and cultivated Shu's acquaintance. Ere many days had passed, another Chinaman came on the scene. This was the man whom Baxter had described as a Chinese gentleman. He represented himself to Wing and Chu as a countryman of theirs, who had been engaged in highly successful trading operations in Europe, and was now, in company with two friends, an Englishman and a Frenchman, carrying out another which involved a trip in a small but well-appointed yacht across the Atlantic. He wanted these countrymen of his own to make up a crew. An introduction to Baxter and the Frenchman followed, and Wing and Chu were taken into confidence as regards the treasure hidden on the Northumberland coast. A share of the proceeds was promised them. They secured a third trustworthy Chinaman, in the person of one Ah Wong, an associate of Chu's, and the yawl, duly equipped, left the Thames and went northward. By this time Wing had wormed himself completely into Chu's confidence, and without even discovering whether Chu was or was not the actual murderer of Salter Quick. He believed him to be, and believed Wong to be the murderer of Noah at Salthash. He had found out that Chu was in possession of the pearls and rubies which, though Wing had no knowledge of that, Salter had exhibited to Baubenheimer and as the yawl neared the scene of the next operations, Wing made his own plans. He had found out that its owners, after recovering the monastic treasurers, were going to call at Leith, 
where they were to be met by the private yacht of some American whose name Wing never heard. Accordingly, he made up his mind to escape from the yawl as soon as it got into Leith, to go straight to the police, and there give information as to the doings of the men he was with. But here his plans were frustrated. He was taken aback by the capture of Miss Raven and myself, by Baxter and the Frenchman, and though he contrived to keep out of our way, he was greatly concerned lest we should see him and conclude that he had joined the gang and was privy to its past and present doings. But that very night a much more serious development materialized. The Chinese gentleman, arriving from London and being met by the Frenchman at Berwick, had a scheme of his own which, after he had attempted the drugging of his two principal associates, he unfolded to his fellow countrymen. This was to get rid of Baxter and the Frenchman, and seize the yawl and its contents for themselves, sailing with it to some port in North Russia. Wing had no option but to profess agreement. His only proviso was that Miss Raven and myself should be cleared out of the yawl. This proposition was readily assented to, and Chu was charged with the job of sending us ashore. But almost immediately afterwards everything went wrong with the conspirators' plans. The drug which had been administered to Baxter and the Frenchman failed to act. Baxter, waking suddenly to find the Chinaman advancing on the cabin with only too evident murderous intent, opened fire on them, and the situation rapidly resolved itself into a free fight in the course of which Wing barricaded himself into the galley. Before long he saw that of all the men on board only himself and Baxter remained alive. He saw, too, that Baxter was already wounded. Baxter, evidently afraid of Wing, also barricaded himself into the cabin. For some hours the two secretly awaited each other's onslaught. At last Wing determined to make a bid for liberty, and cautiously worming his way to the cabin, he looked in, and, as he thought, saw Baxter lying either dead or dying. He then hastily stripped Chu of the belt, in which he knew him to carry the precious stones, and, taking to the boat which lay at the side of the yawl, pushed off, only to find Baxter after him with a revolver. In the exchange of shots which followed, Wing was hit twice, but a lucky reply of his laid Baxter dead. At that he got away, weak and fainting, managed to make the shore, to bind up as much of his wounded body as he could get at, and set out as well as he was able for his master's house. The rest we knew. So that was all over, and it only remained now for the police to clear things up, for Wing to be thoroughly whitewashed in the matter of the shooting of Netherfield Baxter, and for everybody in the countryside to talk of the affair for nine days, and perhaps a little more. Mr. Cazalette talked a great deal. As for Miss Raven and myself, as actors in the last act of the drama which ended in such a tragedy, we talked little. We had seen too much at close quarters. But on the first occasion on which she and I were alone again, I made a confession to her. "'I don't want you, of all people, to get any mistaken impression about me,' I said. "'So I'm going to tell you something. During the whole of the time that you and I were on that yawl, I was in an absolute panic of fear. "'You were?' she exclaimed. "'Really frightened?' 
quaking with fright i declared boldly especially after you'd retired i literally sweated with fear there now it's out she looked at me not at all unkindly mm, she said at last then all i have to say is that you concealed it admirably when i was about at any rate and here she sunk her voice to a pleasing whisper i'm sure that if you were frightened it was entirely on my account so in that way we began a courtship which proving highly satisfactory on both sides is now about to come to an end or a new beginning in marriage end of chapter twenty five recording by nicholas clifford middlebury vermont u s a end of ravensdean court by j s fletcher